This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You've heard of Facebook, right? Huge sites, over a billion people visiting it every day. I'm sure you have. But what's it like working there? I talked with Gabriel Valdivia to find out. I would say the people, whether it's the people that work at Facebook, you know, the design team, the different researchers and content strategists and product managers and everyone involved in the product to the people that we actually design for. Facebook design by people and for people. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Revision Path is looking for both staff writers and feature writers. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. You can also sign up for weekly job alerts, so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email letting you know you can apply. And if you're still looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you again about our audience survey. So go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to take it, and everyone who finishes is entered into a drawing to win a $100 Amazon.com gift card. The survey is really important because it not only helps me to know more about you as a listener, but it also helps to get guests, it helps sponsors, and it also helps me to know more of what you want and provide less of what you don't want. So it's really important to take some time out to fill out that survey. The audience survey is going to close on April the 30th. Now let's talk about our other sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp, of course, is the best software out there for sending marketing emails, automated messages, and targeted campaigns. Join more than 10 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 600 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find the domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we are up to 34 patrons for a combined total of $229 per month. That's a new record. That is amazing to see. So again, huge, huge thanks to all my Patreon patrons. You all really help keep the show going month after month. Big thanks to all of you. Anyone who's pledged uh, your support and appreciation for the show, I really do appreciate it. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Plus level started just $1 per month. It's a really great way to support the show on a regular basis. Right now, I'm giving away free Revision Path logo laptop stickers. So if you become a patron, even at the $1 a month level, you can get a free sticker. So definitely recommend that you sign up, help support the show. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with New York City product designer Earl Carlson. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, how's it going? My name is Earl Carlson, and I'm a product designer based out of Brooklyn, New York. I got here by way of Michigan, then New Orleans, and then uh, San Francisco, and decided to come back to the cold north. So <laughs> That's quite a trip. Yeah, it's been an interesting one. I've definitely learned a lot along the way, and uh, it's definitely been a lot of fun. Uh, you just get to see so many sides of this country and just like, you know, what people are up to in different areas of the of the world, really. 
Well, let's start out in Michigan. You went to school there, right? You went to the University of Michigan? Yep. Yep. Went to University of Michigan, went there for art and design. And it was a pretty broad program where you could kind of dip into a bunch of stuff, got to do like a little bit of woodworking and had some friends that were doing like bronze casting and all of that and fell in love with photography and design and uh, wasn't really sure which I wanted to jump into if I want to do more photography based stuff or if I want to do more design based stuff. Obviously, I ended up with the latter on that notion, but just like a really amazing time. I also went the like super senior route and went five years uh, so I could travel a little bit in between. It sounds like, yeah, you had a good time there. Do you feel like it sort of prepared you once you started getting out there in the working world? Yes and no. Yes and that the biggest thing that I kind of got out of that was the group of friends that kind of stuck with me throughout the years uh, post that. Mm -hmm. And some of the opportunities that I've gotten post that have been because of that group of friends. And then from the schooling itself, it was a really great time to kind of explore and see what things interested me. But then when you get into the real world, a lot of time those times those lessons are just a little bit antiquated, I guess, is maybe a good way of yeah. looking at that. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, you know, it's a gift and a curse in a way, a double-edged sword. So after you graduated, did you stay in Michigan for a while and work, or did you just then move to New Orleans? No, no, I just kind of moved to New Orleans on a whim. A friend of mine had moved down the, there the year previous, and he called me, I think, for the Super Bowl when the Saints won the Super Bowl. And he was out partying with a bunch of people, and he's like, it's 75 degrees. I'm like out in the streets. Everyone's having a really good time. And I was walking to class or walking from class rather, and there was two feet of snow and it was about 20 degrees out. And I was just like, okay, I'm sold. I'll move to New Orleans. Uh, just like that. Yeah, basically. So <laughs> moved down there without a job or a plan, to be honest, just uh, kind of wanted to try something a little bit different. And luckily I was able to find some work down there doing design and uh, it just kind of went from there. But it was absolutely amazing time. How long did you stay in New Orleans? I was there for about three years or so. My girlfriend at the time had moved down with me, and uh, we moved in together and just kind of explored the city and all of that. And yeah, three years, I think, is around, yeah, two and a half, three years. Yeah. I've always wanted to go to New Orleans. I'm in Atlanta, so New Orleans is not that far geographically, but everyone I know that has went, even people I know that live there, they speak, you know, of course, super fondly about the sort of the rich culture mm -hmm. of New Orleans. How was it like for you kind of coming from up north in Michigan down to, to New Orleans? What was it like culturally? It was a huge culture shock. So when you're walking down the streets in New Orleans, one of the things that I miss a lot about it is every single person that you walk by says hi to you. And if mm -hmm. you ask them how they're doing, like you better be prepared to be like waylaid by like 15, 20 minutes because they will tell you how they're doing. <laughs> um, and I think that's maybe like something that you see a lot in the South in general in a couple of the cities that I've visited down there. But New Orleans, it just has this character to it. It's absolutely beautiful, of course. And the people, once they know that you're going to be there for a while, are incredibly welcoming. There's sort of this wall that you have to get past where people think like, oh, you're going to come down here for a couple months and then take off because they see that a lot. But once you invest in the community, you just reap so many rewards from it. We just went back down there a couple of months ago and every bar, every restaurant that we stopped at, there were just friends that we still had down there that we just kind of saw randomly. It was like, oh, hey, how's it going? Like, and then we just like be able to catch up really quickly. And the city sort of has that memory, I want to say. It's like they remember you even if you've taken off and you don't live there anymore. It still holds something there for you. Mm -hmm. So you were in New Orleans for three years. You also were working down there as well. What's the design scene like? I'm really curious about that. Like, what is it like? One of the reasons that I ended up moving away from New Orleans was because there's not much of a design scene. You have a couple really phenomenal designers that are down there and they're kind of making it work, but there's not really a community that you can interact with on any level. And the tech scene is starting to kind of pop up a little bit down there. There's a few startups that have gotten some pretty serious funding and they're doing really well, but still the scene is really small and it gets kind of lonely being in a smaller city without much of a design community and you don't have like anybody to really bounce ideas back and forth with. Uh -huh. So yeah, it's like, it's 
one of the things that's like a gift and a curse with New Orleans is just that they really care and they're passionate about your life, not necessarily your work. Yeah. And yeah, so then you don't have a ton of people that are down there like striving really hard to do anything major because the major thing that they're focusing on is just like being a good human and like enjoying life with one another. So you're down there for three years and that sort of lack of community, is that what pushed you to go then to San Francisco? Because that seems like that's a big, that's another big shock. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the last couple of months that I was down there as freelancing as well, which made it even tougher because I wasn't going into an office and like being able to talk with people. And then after a bit, I was just like, okay, like I'm going to throw out a few applications to a couple of companies and see if there's like any bites. And luckily there was a couple went out to San Francisco and kind of fell in love with the city, had some friends that were already out there. So it made the transition really easy for me. And yeah, uh, packed up the car with uh, my girlfriend and I packed up the car rather with our two cats and as much as we could put into her like tiny two door sedan and drove across the country. <laughs> <laughs> we we're just like, okay, if we're going to do it, like let's kind of restart and uh, see what there is in San Francisco. And how big was the shift? I guess, you know, going from that smaller town where there's not much of a design community to San Francisco, which seems to be this this really big burgeoning place where it's not just, I mean, tech, but also there's a lot of design focused things that are happening as well. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, it was like just such an eye opening experience to be around so many talented designers and not even just designers, but so many talented thinkers, really. You could go to a meetup and like you just would hear so many great talks and you didn't really get that in New Orleans. Like I'd just be like listening to them on YouTube or something like that. And instead it's mm -hmm. just like you have as deep of a talk and then you can have conversations with those people afterwards. And it, uh, you know, made a ton of difference in the way that I thought about the work that I do now. So where were some of the places that you, you worked in San Francisco? I imagine you were probably there for a good while, right? Yeah. So, uh, I was actually only in San Francisco for a little over two years. When I first joined, I joined a sister company to Wikipedia called Wikia. And they're sort of like for-profit, put ads on the site. But we got to do a lot of really awesome work with Wikipedia. We we're trying to revamp their editor so that people can add content to Wikipedia uh, more easily. Mm -hmm. And I remember like the first day when I saw like a badge with the Wikipedia logo on it and like just being like, where am I? Like this, is, this doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me. Like, I was working at like a small design studio in New Orleans, like, you know, six months before that or something like that. And then sitting in the middle of Soma in San Francisco with a Wikipedia badge on my laptop. And I was just like, this is amazing. So one of the projects you said you worked on there was kind of the, was it like the editor that you used to add Add content to Wikipedia? Yeah, yeah. So the problem that Wikipedia was facing was a lot of their editors are sort of traditionalists. They edit in this crazy like markup language that's really difficult to get into for a new user. And Wikipedia had noticed that um, their user ratio or their users were dropping, the amount of content editors were dropping, and they're trying to find new ways to get newer people into the editing like ecosystem basically so we started figuring out and doing uh, some testing around like what ways or what things people needed in an editor like some baseline things and like there's some pretty obvious things that they need but for wikipedia there's also like a few extras that kind of threw a couple of wrenches into the product but it made it a really interesting design challenge and what was kind of the, I guess, the end result from that? Uh, the end result was that they shipped the new editor, and you can see it if you go in and start editing on Wikipedia now. And they've been doing more work to it since I've left and uh, been doing some really great additions to it. But it's just, like, awesome to see any of your work, like, out in the real world and know that people are actually using it to start providing insight into any of them, like, obvious like millions of topics on wikipedia so that was a pretty yeah. awesome feeling so what prompted the move then from san francisco to new york so uh, after being in san francisco for a couple of years it started feeling a little bit of like a never-ending tech conference and <laughs> like, which is amazing and it's funny i was talking to a friend who's looking at moving out to new york from san francisco and he just like mentioned that same thought this morning and it, yeah, just like you're at coffee shops and you hear about tech, you're like out climbing and you hear about tech 
I would be out surfing and like there'd be like a group next to me that was talking about like whatever startup they were working on. And I'm just like, okay, like this is sort of the like opposite in all of the ways from being in New Orleans where New Orleans, yeah. like you never talk about tech or your job, you talk about life. And then in San Francisco, it's like, okay, you don't talk about your life. You just talk about the startup that you're working at and how it's going to change the world. And as much as I respect that, it was time for me to kind of get away from that. I don't think it was healthy for me. So do you think New York so far has kind of been a, a balance of those two? Yeah, so far it's been really amazing. You know, when I first moved out here, I went out to a coffee shop and it was weird because there were people talking at the coffee shop and there were a couple of people reading books at the coffee shop and there was like one laptop up. And after being in San Francisco, it was like all laptops and the only people that were talking were again talking about tech. So it was like kind of this nice breath of fresh air. But then I'm still really satisfied at my job currently. Um, I'm being challenged every day and I'm getting to do some really amazing product design work. So yeah, it's just been this really amazing balance for me. Well, let's talk about that. You're, you're currently at DigitalOcean. Yep. So what's some of the work that you're doing? So we work on a crazy technical product. Uh, basically, we work on the cloud and uh, making the cloud easier for developers to use because right now a lot of the other competitors offer solutions that are really comprehensive and give you a lot of options, but they're not really well designed. They're not thought out. You can tell that it's just like, okay, here's the kitchen sink. You figure it out. And we kind of take the approach of like, what things are, or what are the tools you actually need? What are the problems you're actually having? And like, how can we help you solve those? So it's been really, really fun. And we have a lot of love in the developer community as well. Like I've gone out to a couple of events and just like having developers come up to us and just be like, we love your product. Like, thank you for doing this. It's just like such a good feeling to know that some of the work we're doing is like making a big difference for somebody. So kind of walk me through like what's a what's a typical day like being a product designer at DigitalOcean? Yeah. So in the mornings I get into work. I usually like have a coffee with me or something. And we do a stand up in the mornings with just my team. So it's another product designer that I work with, Andrew Witherspoon, and our product manager and all the engineers that are on the product. And we kind of talk about what we've been up to yesterday, what we're doing tomorrow. And then today specifically, we're, we've been working on um, some user testing plans. So we've been working on a few um, sets of wireframes and we want to kind of figure out like which wireframe or which um, user flow is going to make the most sense to our users. So we just grabbed a whiteboard today and uh, essentially from the stand up up through uh, when I jumped into this interview, we've been doing whiteboard sessions to kind of work through different user flows and figure out a proper testing plan that we're going to go and start talking with a few devs next week, early next week. And then at the end of the day, it's a really nice thing where we do a design review. And basically, it's not like no ego, like leave that at the door type of thing where you just present work that you've been working on that you've been thinking about to try to get some feedback from the other designers on the team. And it's a nice way to close out the day for us where we get to all sit in a room, we get to look, look at what somebody else is working on that like maybe we haven't seen, maybe we've seen in a different iteration and then kind of help the designer out and thinking through some of the problems. And that's, I've never had that before at any of the design jobs I've been at. So it's been a really nice way to kind of wrap up the day and be like, okay, like now we're done. Like here's some feedback that's super helpful for you. And then, you know, probably play a game of ping pong and then head home. <laughs> well, doesn't sound too bad. Sounds like a good day. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> What is the, the hardest part about what you do? The hardest part for me is that it's a very technical product. And sometimes I get caught in the trap of being like, oh, I'm a technical designer. Like I kind of understand the product, like I use the product, but it's reminding myself to not be fooled by that because the people that are actually using the product more seriously aren't me. They're like not really anybody in the office. They're like devs that are, have crazy jobs and it's like super thankless and they're just trying to make sure that their like website or their app doesn't go down a lot of times so yeah it's like easy to just be like oh what would i want in this and instead it's like the reminder of like no what's this dev want mm -hmm. and a lot of times before this when i've been working on products it's a little bit easier to distance myself and be like oh like 
I'm not like a real estate agent or something like that. Like I can't lie to myself and be like, yeah, I totally understand what the problem is. So, <laughs> Well, one thing I saw when I was looking at your website, just kind of like the brief intro to it, you were mentioning that you enjoy working with teams that are developing both software and hardware. Is that kind of what DigitalOcean is doing? I know you say you work with the cloud, but you're also kind of doing, it sounds like, maybe some interface, some UI work, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, one of the things that was has been kind of fun uh, about jumping in here is I'm just learning so much about how the internet works. Uh, and it feels like every week I'm just like coming home and being like, oh, the internet is literally just a set of tubes that's under the ocean. Like <laughs> that type of information that's like really simple and basic, but for me it's just like mind-blowing basically. So that's been a lot of fun. And then uh, before this, I was working on a competitor to GoPro that Nokia was working on. They It was just sort of an R&D project that got canned, unfortunately. But uh, that was crazy because it was just like working on the UI. I was working on the website, but we had designers in-house that were working on the UI for the device itself. And then we had some industrial designers that were working on like what the device looks and feels like and getting to talk to them about like just little knobs and how they feel and like when you click the shutter it should have like a certain click so that it feels very quality it gave me a different perspective on the work that i do i was going to ask you about that as i look through the projects uh adventure lab is what you're talking about yep can you talk about that i know you say the project has been canned but are you at liberty to talk about it a little bit yeah yeah so i came in I'm trying to think came in maybe a year into the project or so. So like a lot of the hardware was kind of worked out at that point. And then we were trying to figure out like, okay, when you're like out skiing or you're out surfing or you're out doing like any sport really, you're using a GoPro a lot of times right now. And then you have to go home, you have to edit that footage. And I think there's a stat, something like 99% of GoPro footage is just like never shared, never edited. It just kind of thrown away because it's too much of a pain to go back through and edit that. And we were trying to figure out something that was a little bit more shareable. So just like you could be out, like grab a 15 second clip of like your body catching a wave and then just like instantly share it because it was um, always connected. It was a Wi-Fi and cell device as well. So there's a lot of that stuff that was kind of already figured out and super exciting for me because I do do a lot of outdoor stuff. And then it was just like, okay, what does this interface actually work or look like? And we work really closely with Rally, who's a studio, a design studio out in Utah in Salt Lake City. And they were working on the iOS app. We were working on the web portion of that app. And it was just like a really, really phenomenal group. Just like all of us went outdoors, did like a lot of fun stuff. Like a bunch of us still surfed together uh, when I was out in San Francisco. And yeah, it's just like one of the best groups that I've been able to be a part of. So outside of, you know, the work that you're doing with DigitalOcean, are you working on any like personal projects or anything like that? Right now I'm trying to write a lot more. I have sort of been like on and off writing design stuff for the past little while, but I've been making it more of a priority for myself to just like write down a lot of things. I was involved in like a couple side projects before this, but it wasn't as satisfying to me to like, get home and then like jump back into sketch, jump back into like doing code or anything like that. Like, so writing's actually been like really sort of therapeutic for me to like work out a lot of the design stuff that I'm working through at work and also get a little bit away from doing actual design stuff. Yeah. I've read the pieces that you've got up on medium. They're really great. One of them is about globalization and like considering other languages one was about moving across the country. That was a good tip to know about, like, shipping stuff with Amtrak. I didn't know that. Um, and, and, like, the latest one you did was about redesigning the, the Amber Alert that we get on our mobile phones. Yeah, that one was kind of fun because I, like, got an Amber Alert on my phone and, like, immediately dismissed it. Like, literally just opened up Instagram when I saw it. And I was out, like, grabbing a coffee with my girlfriend and... She was just like, you didn't even look at that. I'm like, well, why would I? I don't even know what it is. Like, it's just sort of obnoxious. And she kind of like explained like, oh, it's like a missing child and all of this. Then I got back home and dug into Amber Alerts. And it's a really fascinating system where they were like developed uh, because this girl Amber like had been lost or had turns out she was kidnapped. And they, like the story is really tragic, but 
now we have this nationwide system where they send out push notifications to people, but the push notifications themselves or the SMSs themselves are like really poorly worded. They don't like give you a lot of reason to want to look at them and they're pretty easy to ignore. So then it was just like, okay, what can we do to make this a little bit better given the current limitations of the system? And yeah, it just ended up being a lot of fun to just do a little sort of mini design exercise and also like get back into that writing that I had mentioned. Yeah. I don't know how they come across like on other mobile systems, like on iOS or anything. I know for Android, whenever the Amber Alert comes across, it's, it's very disruptive. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, a sound. It's almost like a, like a tornado siren. <laughs> and then the Amber, and then the Amber Alert takes up the whole screen. So anything else that you're doing is grayed out and then it just pops up like, bam, like you can't really miss it. It sounds like it's a lot more subtle. On yeah. IOS on <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Uh, because yeah, on iOS, it literally just shows up in the feed alongside like Instagram notifications, Facebook notifications. And it just like, hey, like there's a van or something like that. And here's a license plate number. You're like, mm -hmm. cool. Okay. And then it just disappears forever or it goes into your notifications, pull down rather, but it's just like it's gone once you ignore it once. What's been some of the feedback that you've gotten from these Medium posts that you've been putting up? Uh, the feedback's been amazing, especially uh, with the Amber Alert. It's gotten a lot more like love than I thought it would, to be honest, because I was just like, uh, it's just like a silly little thing that I'm redesigning. But I've been getting some really interesting um, traffic, both in comments on Medium and then like people just like tweeting at like the Department of Justice with the article attached and that kind of thing. So I'm actually um, talking with a couple of people to see how I can like maybe move forward with this and just like see who I can talk to about this. So also anybody that's listening, if you know anybody that I might be able to talk to about this, please uh, hit me up on Twitter or anything like that because um, I'd really like to make this a reality. But yeah, then the other post that I've done, it's always like really fun to see who comments on things, who shares things. I have like a list of style guides and brand frameworks that I just kind of put together a couple of years ago. And that thing is like forever going to be the most popular article that I have on Medium for some reason, because people <laughs> love style guides. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely uh, a lot of fun just to see how people respond to the work that you do. And I'm sure that you kind of see some of that too with um, doing all of these podcasts. Yeah, it's, you know, the feedback from with Provision Path has been interesting, just kind of seeing who picks up on it, who shares it. Like, I think this might have been sometime uh, maybe in December of last year, like John Maida, like the famous <laughs> designer John Maida mm -hmm. was like, oh, everyone should check out this podcast called Provision Path. I'm like, what? <laughs> OK, that's awesome. I, I'll tell you, though, for uh, for what you're doing with the Amber Alert, I think the people at the U.S. Digital Service would probably be super interested. Okay. U.S. Digital Service, 18F, I think they're the same, or 18F is like a subset of the U.S. Digital Service. But I know that that's the sort of stuff that they certainly would be interested in uh, in hearing about. I'm trying to get some people from there on the show. Hopefully in the near future that'll happen because they actually reached out to me and they were like, hey, we have some folks that would love to be on the show. I'm like, okay, let's, <laughs> let's make it happen. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's really Yeah, amazing. that's good. So what are you kind of the most excited about at the moment? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty fulfilled with work and, and with what you're doing with your writing. What are you excited about now? I'm kind of excited about what we we're talking about earlier, just like getting back into that balance of work life. Like you said, like I'm super fulfilled at work. The team that I work with is amazing. And honestly, like we hang out a ton outside of work because it's just like we're all sort of goofy and silly and we have a lot of fun together. And yeah, just kind of finding like all the things to do in and around New York. One of the things that I regret most about New Orleans was at a certain point, I just kind of got into my routine and I did like the same things over and over. And mm -hmm. then like when we left, it was like, oh, we never did like A, B, C, D, E or F. Like, why did that happen? We were here for so long. Uh -huh. So that's a big part of it. And then also sort of travel, upcoming travel is huge for me just as kind of a reset for my mind to be like, okay, it's not just the people in New York that I'm designing for. It's not just the people in San Francisco. It's the people, you know, like anybody basically like, and that's been always one of my favorite parts about traveling too, is it's just like, you get reminded really quickly of like, okay, like 
there's a lot of people in this world and you're not just designing for, you know, like the 20, like two to 32 year olds that live in or work in the tech industry. <laughs> yeah. In, in that globalization post you had, I think you were mentioning you were in, in Poland, right? Yeah. Yeah. I got to go to Poland a couple of times for work when I was working at Wikia and that was just a trip. I never really had any desire to go to Poland before. It's not that I didn't have any desire. It's just like I never thought of it as a place that I'd want to go. Right. And then it was just absolutely amazing. All the people that live in Poland, or at least the ones that I got to meet, were really fascinating and like just the nicest and most welcoming people. A friend of mine out there took me out to Polish Woodstock, which is this like absolutely bonkers event uh, that's completely free. And they have like a ton of world music that happens and people camp out for like a week beforehand. And it was just like really crazy, but really amazing. Just like a great experience. It almost kind of sounds like Burning Man or something. Yeah, yeah. It's really similar to Burning Man uh, without the – so it's like attached to a town sort of. There's like a small town that sort of gets invaded by Polish Woodstock. And then <laughs> like Burning Man is this other thing where you're like kind of like out in the desert and there's like no towns around. So you kind of get like a bit more crazy it seems like or crazy in a different way. Yeah. Both have been amazing. Um, I would recommend both for anybody that's listening. Now you had a, a project that you did that was back in um, back in 2012. You did this poster project that's on Kickstarter called The Dreamers. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that one was a lot of fun. Um, part of it was I was super interested in Kickstarter. I think it's a really phenomenal platform for launching new ideas. So I kind of wanted to like figure something out that might be cool for other people to um, participate in or like get to back and like get something out of it. Mm-hmm. And was just like sitting around. This was uh, during Katrina, not Katrina, sorry, uh, during I don't remember which the, or what the hurricane name was, but we had our power knocked out for a week. And like when you don't have power for a week, like people start getting like a little crazy. Um, it's like by day three, like you start seeing like the realness coming out as opposed to just like mm-hmm. people being sort of nice. And I was just like hanging around and like started sketching a few things since like I didn't have a computer, I couldn't do the freelance work that I needed to do. And it was just like, okay, like what things kind of like suck for people right now, basically, like what are like some easy wins? And like one of the big things is like motivational posters, like they suck across the board. They're like, (laughs) there's no good motivational posters really. And I was just like thinking like, okay, you know, like, what would somebody want to hang up near their desk to just be like to remind them every day to like sort of like that the grind is worth it that you're like working towards something bigger and mm-hmm. started just like doing some quick sketches like I uh, had some base ideas for quotes and like once we got like power again uh, <laughs> got like the proper quotes from a bunch of people that were just like basic or base inspirational quotes and kind of whittled them down to things that were like either easy to illustrate or like really powerful and then found the like sort of things that fit those perfectly of being both easy to illustrate and really powerful and came up with the uh, three quotes that ended up in those posters. And just when I was like doing it, I hadn't really like planned things out super well. So I just kind of guessed at how much the posters would cost. And I was like, Uh for a like higher tier, I'll do like letterpress posters with like some silver ink. And I'm like, those can't cost that much to do. And (laughs) (laughs) like started getting some quotes from places and all of the quotes were coming in at like two times what the Kickstarter had made. And I'm just like, I had no idea what to do in this situation. But luckily there was a local printer that gave me like a much lower quote and like did just a phenomenal job and like was really cool to like see the process of doing the letterpress for those because she like gave me the uh, letterpress blocks that have the like steel cutouts for so I can like redo it at a point in time in the future if I wanted to but then she kind of like walked me through how she went through and printed them and it was like not only an amazing experience because so many people showed so much love to the project, but also because I got to learn so much about printing and especially the letterpress process. Yeah, I was going to ask like what you really sort of learned from from doing such a big event like that, a Kickstarter event. A couple of the big things were just like 
putting myself out there and being like super vulnerable and like the video, like I look back at it now and I sort of like cringe because it's like, it's like sort <laughs> of awkward and all of that. But like, because I put myself out there, there was like a really nice reception to it. And it wasn't like super polished, like the video wasn't super polished or anything like that, but it was very real. And I worried that maybe people would like kind of make fun of me or just like just not be interested at all, which would be even worse than like getting made fun of. Um, mm -hmm. And again, like the reception was just like really awesome to that. And just like hearing some of the comments that people sent over to me and like getting some love still, like every once in a while, I'll get a message on Kickstarter being like, hey, like, is there any chance I can like pick up these posters? Like I kind of saw the project and they look amazing. Like, so yeah, that notion of being vulnerable and being like open with being vulnerable is pretty huge. And it was like a really nice life lesson for me. Are you going to continue? Do you think you'll do like a second campaign or something? I've thought about it a lot. I don't know right now what I would want to put out there, but I've definitely thought about it and I'd like to do a second campaign. A couple of my friends that I worked with at Nokia or at uh, Adventure Lab are doing a campaign for Omata, O-M-A-T-A, and it's for a bike speedometer for like hardcore cyclists, but it's one of the most beautiful objects that I've ever seen in my life, to be honest. So I'm really stoked for them. They're like gonna be launching that, I think next week. And that's just like amazing to see that because they've already gotten so much love on their Facebook page and you can like always tell when something's gonna be like a wicked success on Kickstarter because they kind of mm -hmm. have that build up beforehand before they like drop the announcement of like, okay, it's live on Kickstarter. So so when we first, you know, this is actually before we started the interview for people that are listening, I kind of, for, for those that are regular listeners to the show, they know that I ask, you know, quote unquote, the Oprah question to people that are on the show, which is basically, you know, when people are done listening, what do you want the takeaway to be? And you had kind of mentioned that you want people to know that you can kind of move around and try a bunch of different things as long as you've got that that drive to succeed. What would you say has been, and this is if this even exists, what would you say has been kind of your biggest compromise that you've had to make in your career to kind of be where you are right now? I'd say the biggest compromise is, you know, with moving around so much and like trying out a bunch of different things, there's like sort of pieces of me that I've left in different areas. Like, and I mean that like sort of in a metaphorical sense, of course, uh, mm. where like in San Francisco, for example, it's just like I have some of my closest friends that I've ever had in my life. And when like we decided to move out to New York, it was just like, okay, like I'm going to see these people a lot less and I'm going to like, you know, at best see them like once a year, twice a year, maybe once at Burning Man and then heading back to San Francisco and being sort of okay with that and knowing that they were okay with that to try something new and to make the move out and try working at DigitalOcean, which has been like, again, so incredibly rewarding to work here and then also live in New York, that it's been very worth it. But it's also come with a lot of heartache, to be honest. Are you kind of where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? Truthfully, I'm further past where I wanted to be at this stage in life, depending on how far you go back. Because I grew up in a town of 3,000 people in upper Michigan, and it just, oh, like, wow. I had no idea, like, that, you know, you could be a product designer, like, really care about people's needs, like, get to do some really cool works with some really intelligent people like this, and there's, like, literally buildings in Manhattan that have more people in them right now than my hometown does. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you kind of get that that spark for design then if you come from like such a such a really small town? It's probably um, from just being like an internet nerd, to be honest. One of my coworkers, Joel, and I like joke back and forth a lot because he started doing design by doing like Counter-Strike signatures for message boards. And I was like very similar. Like I was like doing the same except for uh, wrestling message boards, like professional wrestling, like WWE I would like make signatures for people and uh, make them for myself and all of that with like the Photoshop pen tool, like cutting out like people's hair and all of that. So it looks really good. <laughs> like, just the worst, tackiest stuff. But truthfully, that's probably where it kind of started. It was like jumping onto like weird wrestling forums and all of that. And then like getting a copy of like Paint Shop Pro and then like eventually upgrading to uh, Photoshop and <laughs> 
yeah, it's been a weird ride. Who have, who's been some of the mentors or people that have kind of really helped you out along the way? So I'd say in New Orleans, there's a couple, Candy and James. Um, they had Civic Center together. It's uh, Candy Chang and James Reeves. And Civic Center was a design studio that was also like helping people out and trying to make communities better. And they taught me a lot. My girlfriend was working with them and we just got to hang out with them because of that. And they just taught me a lot about like, what it's like to be very passionate about the work that you do and also to try to do work that makes a difference. Dan Parham is a guy that uh, worked with Candy and uh, his brother Teach. He started up this startup called Neighborland, which is kind of like a byproduct of that where neighbors can go on and talk about what they'd like to see in their neighborhood. And also Dan's just been like an amazing design manager throughout most of his career. And he's another guy that's just kind of like helped me out, especially in San Francisco, when I was dealing with a lot of big questions about, you know, what I wanted in the future, like where I saw myself, um, if product design was really even right for me. He like would just invite me over to his place. We'd go up to his roof. We'd each have a beer and uh, kind of just like talk through a bunch of stuff. And yeah, it was just like, it's really amazing. And really, really important for me to have those people in my life as mentors. Are there any designers that are out there now that you really admire? Um, truthfully, Joel, who I work with, um, he's actually a design manager for our design team. And he has been absolutely amazing. His name's Joel Khalifa. He's really big in the design scene out here. And it's kind of helped intro me to a bunch of people. He was a product designer, kind of like neck and neck with me, basically, like or same level as me. And then because of org changes, he got brought up to be a manager. And he's like taken to it so amazingly. He's like so deeply passionate about all the people on the team and just like trying to do best for them. And without that, I don't think that being out in New York would have been as rewarding as it has been. What keeps you motivated? Like what gives you purpose for the work that you do? It's a good question because, like, obviously, anytime you're doing any sort of work, it's really easy to lose sight of the bigger picture of, like, why you're doing the work and get kind of caught up in the weeds and, like, get down and depressed at times. And for me, a lot of times it is just, like, really trying to, like, take a step back. Like, if I'm feeling down, like, I will kind of notice that in myself and then just kind of, like, be honest and be vulnerable with the people around me about what's going on. And then... Also, like at the same time I'm doing that and like talking with people, I try to take a step back and be like, okay, like honestly, like what am I doing currently? Like, am I really happy with the stuff that I'm doing? Is the stuff that I'm doing making an impact for other people? And luckily the answer is like regularly been yes. Um, and it kind of helps get me out of that funk because yeah, it's a rough place to be when you're like in the weeds and you're just like, I'm not really motivated anymore. I don't really like care about the work that I'm doing. And it's like, okay, what are some like base reasons for this? Like, why am I feeling this way? And people have luckily always been there to help me work through those things. So what kind of advice would you give, say, for, for people that want to follow in your footsteps, want to be a product designer? What advice would you give them? So if you want to be a product designer, um, like the way that I kind of fell into it was just partially through being able to do some work with like smaller teams, like smaller teams always need help basically. And even if you're just doing freelance work and just kind of helping out, it can kind of get you your foot in the door because that's like the hardest part. Once your foot is in the door, like this industry needs product designers like crazy, but we also need experienced product designers. So basically a big part of it is just like find those opportunities that'll help you get that base foot in the door and then from there, like, it's pretty smooth sailing a lot of times. Like, you just have to, like, kind of have that drive and that passion. And, like, as corny as it sounds, like, being empathetic is huge. Like, just, like, really caring about the people that you're working for and or the users that are using your product. And, like, if you don't, if you can't find that connection, like, that's all right. Like, it's okay to try a different thing out. Like, maybe it's just, like, you have a tough time connecting with those users and, Maybe you should try like a different product or a different vertical that has a different set of users that maybe you can relate to a little bit better. You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that about empathy because I was just speaking with some members of our, we have a, a Slack community, and we were kind of talking about, you know, designers and empathy and what you see in 
design communities, for example. And one thing, of course, you know, we always talk about designers need to have, just like you said, empathy for kind of the user and sort of what they're going through. But oftentimes you'll see <laughs> in some design communities a supreme lack of empathy mm -hmm. <laughs> when it comes to, I mean, sometimes it's criticism. Sometimes it's just you might have an idea that other people just don't like. And, and that's, I mean, that's pretty open and vague. But what are some ways that designers can build empathy? Honestly, just finding who the people are that are using your product. Like if you're working on a product that has users, that is, and just like talking with them, even if it's something as simple as grabbing a beer with somebody that's using your product, like that can open up a whole host of things. One of the things that we've been doing at Dio for the product that we're working on is just like occasionally grabbing beers with people that are like on call, like dealing with the problems that like we're interested in at that moment. And then like, luckily, like there's not been any big fires or anything like that for them. They just like, oh, like I got an alert about this one thing or something else. And we get to see like the actual use case for that. And also just kind of get to shoot the shit about, um, you know, what's going on, like what their daily challenges are. And like similar to this interview, um, you know, just getting to know the person a little bit more so that they become like a real person rather than just like a user. Where do you see yourself in like the next five years or so? You kind of, I get this feeling you'll be in another city somewhere doing something because you kind of seem like this design nomad in a way. <laughs> <laughs> like you're in one place and you go somewhere else and you go somewhere else. But where do you, where do you think you'll be in, what is 2016? In 2021, where is Earl going to be? What's he going to be working on? Yeah, that's actually funny that you asked that because I've been thinking about this a lot recently. One of the things that I'd like to do, because I've worked with so many great managers over the past couple of years, i just like to kind of transition into a bit of that role where I'm going to help people with their issues on the design side. Um, so like making sure that a team is working really effectively and just like kind of building them up um, and doing that with a product that's sort of future centered or like looking to help people with like really base level needs, which are sort of like two sides of the same coin. A lot of times where you're like working on things that are thinking about the future, looking not just like, you know, a couple of years into the future, but what's it like, you know, 10, 20, a hundred years into the future. And then making sure that we're helping out, not just like the people that can afford like a really expensive tech gadget, but like all of the people, like pretty much anybody that can, um, that is around. It's a lot of, or a lot of times in the tech industry, we kind of uh, forget about third world countries, for example, and like a lot of the struggles that they're going through. And it'd be amazing to start working more with people that are going through real struggles that don't just like have to worry about like, oh, I have to do my laundry tonight. But it's like, you know, am I going to be able to have clean drinking water tonight? And that kind of thing. I think that's a really good idea. I've I've interviewed designers and developers that are in different parts of Africa. And one thing that they sort of have talked about is this concept that goes on there that's called load shedding. And I don't know if this takes place in every African country, but in the ones that I've spoken to, people that have been in Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, etc., there may be often times where there might be a day or two out of the week where you don't have any power. Mm -hmm. And so there's no power. You can't get on the web. You can't design. You can't do anything. So you have to kind of plan your work days and your work schedule around that. And I think that's something that certainly here in the U.S. we take for granted because we have kind of a ubiquity of power and Internet and access to, you know, some necessities that we kind of use to do our jobs that in other countries they don't even have on a consistent basis. Yeah, yeah. Load shedding like always blows my mind because it's just such a thing that, like you said, we take for granted. We don't even really think about it. Just like, oh, of course we have power. And like in the past year, I've had one day where I didn't have power in my apartment. And I was like, that's cute, like, basically. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's like things like that or like, you know, all of the like really like beautiful, sexy animations that like designers throw onto things. It's like those are really nice if you're like using the latest iPhone or like using like a new Android device. But it's like that's not like what people always have for like cell phone penetration even, I think. It's like three out of four people have a smartphone in the United States that have cell phones. And it's like that still means that 25% of the people that have cell phones in the United States are not using smartphones, like, which is an incredible stat. Um, 
it's just so many people and we kind of take those people for granted now. Yeah. Well, Earl, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? So uh, Twitter, it's just the Earl Carlson, T-H-E Earl Carlson. And then my medium is I-A-M-T-E-C. And yeah, those are probably the two easiest ways. Uh, feel free to shoot me a tweet, shoot me a direct message, anything like that. Like I'd love to talk more about any of the things that we kind of chatted about today. All right. Sounds good. Well, Earl Carlson, thank you again so much for, for taking time out of your day, for coming on the show. I really like a lot of what you had to say as it relates to, it seems like as you moved from city to city, you kind of leveled up in a way in terms of the work that you've done and with your skills and everything. And, you know, it does sound like you're really in a good place right now with Digital Ocean. I really liked a lot of what you had to say about empathy and about how writing has really kind of helped you, I guess, develop a lot more of these ideas and put them out there to get feedback from other people. I really kind of wish more designers would would do stuff like that. But no, man, thank you so much again for coming on the show. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, this is amazing. I really, really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thoughts of love are And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Earl Carlson and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Earl and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. No one designs at scale quite like Facebook does, and that scale is only matched by their commitment to giving back to the design community. Learn more about designing at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash design. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps us get new listeners. It helps us kind of move up those podcast rankings for design. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Also, we are now on Google Play. So if you go to the website, revisionpath.com, you'll see a link there where you can subscribe. Or if you're a Google Play subscriber, just search for Revision Path and you'll find the entire archive of podcasts there. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.